Welcome to the Reading Room. This is Room 30. Bunny Barraclough is a real pillar of her community, a leading member of the local amateur dramatic society and ladies' luncheon club, respectable housewife and mother of two loving children. Join us for her biannual round-robin newsletters as she fills you in on the latest news of her perfect family. The Reading Room presents the Barraclough Newsletters. The Barraclough Newsletters by Jim Gotts. Dear friends, greetings once again from the Barraclough family. Isn't it amazing how this time of year comes round so quickly? It doesn't seem like five minutes since I sent you our last newsletter. For me, this year has been particularly busy. I have been deeply involved in the Amateur Dramatic Society, Origami Workshop, Bridge Evenings and Ladies' Luncheon Club, all of which has increased dramatically the demands made upon me. As a result, this newsletter is slightly later than usual, so I'm sorry if you've been left wondering what on earth could have happened to it. Fear not, however, for by burning copious amounts of midnight oil, I have managed to get this to you before the year end and avoid any disappointment. Last spring, my husband Archie made the decision to bring about a fundamental change of direction in his career. Over some considerable time, he had become frustrated in his position as Southeast Regional Director of Stock Control for Bolthead and Willingthorpe, the well-known underfloor heating specialists. His resignation caused consternation and dismay among the members of the board, but determined to pursue his own interests, he resisted their attempts to persuade him to stay. The board eventually concluded that in view of the anticipated difficulty in finding a replacement with similar outstanding abilities, it would be preferable for Archie to vacate his position at once. Accordingly, the customary month's notice period was waived and he left the company that very afternoon. It was something of a surprise when, three days later, he received a letter from the company purporting to set out the terms and conditions of his redundancy. Archie explained that this was clearly a mistake. However, he decided not to make a fuss, as he would not like to have jeopardised the future of the junior member of staff responsible. In any event, the cheque enclosed with the letter would serve as a symbolic, if small, recompense for the lack of a severance settlement arising from his resignation. And so, free at last to indulge his lifelong love of the arts, Archie has opened a bookshop in the centre of our local town. It is a small but attractive space, situated between a pound shop and a Chinese takeaway. At first, stock was a problem. Despite creating an attractive display from the accumulated store of books available at our house, he nevertheless needed a further considerable quantity to fill the shelves, and so embarked on a vigorous campaign of stock acquisition. As a result, the variety of literature available in his shop is gratifying, demonstrating, if you will, his ability to get the best from people representative of all levels of society. 
He enjoys the cut and thrust of negotiation with the suppliers, but will admit to a measure of fatigue from having to begin every day at 4.30am, particularly if the weather is bad and the stalls are too far apart. But that's enough about Archie. What's our daughter Araminta doing, I can hear you asking? Well, I have some tremendous news. Last month she came down from London to see us and over lunch announced that she was going to have a baby. We were delighted, as you can imagine. Naturally, we asked her who the father was and I must admit to being somewhat taken aback when she said that she wasn't sure. We must have seemed disconcerted because she quickly explained that she was having a joke and that she would be bringing the father to meet us in the near future. Sure enough, two weeks later, they both came down to visit us for the weekend. He introduced himself as Jack and appeared to be a shy, quiet young man who said very little at dinner on the first night. I couldn't help but feel sorry for him as he was clearly suffering from a bad skin condition with blemishes, eruptions and cavities all over his face, nose and ears. In a quiet moment after dinner, Araminta explained that on a visit to the medical centre to arrange Jack's DNA profile, the doctor declared that Jack was suffering from a continuing series of infections brought about by the inferior quality of the metal used for his decorative piercings. Araminta said that the doctor had given Jack some very nice smelling antiseptic cream and assured him that in the fullness of time, the holes would heal, leaving hardly a scar. We were curious as to the nature of Jack's occupation and he eventually told us that he was in the import and distribution business. When we asked for more details, he said that he could not be specific, as to do so would mean revealing commercially sensitive information and of course we fully understood. It seems, though, that we should have no anxieties as to his ability to take care of our daughter financially, if one can judge by the numerous gold chains around his neck and the large shiny black BMW that they arrived in. During the weekend, we put forward the idea that rather than bring up a young baby amidst the noise and pollution of central London, they might like to consider coming to live with us until such time as the child is of school age. They both thanked us for the invitation, but Jack explained that they had managed to acquire a comfortable, light and spacious flat in one of the better parts of Brixton, conveniently situated for the efficient supervision of Jack's network of distributors. We insisted, nonetheless, that the offer would always remain open, and Jack said he would bear it in mind if he ever needed to get out of London for a while. Now to our son, Tancred, who is currently away on his gap year. It is his intention, when he gets to university, to study modern languages, concentrating on the Romance languages, particularly Spanish, which he can already speak, thanks to his holiday in Benidorm last year. He felt that the obvious course of action was to undertake an extensive tour of South America in order to immerse himself in Latin American culture and hone his language skills in Spanish and Portuguese at the same time. Two for the price of one, as it were. 
Within a few weeks, he had packed and eagerly embarked for the first destination on his itinerary, Buenos Aires. Isn't it strange how one can unexpectedly be blessed by good luck? In Tancred's case, it was shortly after his arrival in Buenos Aires that he met someone who he immediately recognised could help him in adapting to his new environment. Her name was Martina and they met at the tango classes that Tancred was attending. She said that her father was a respected ambassadorial aide in the Argentine diplomatic service and that this background had given her unique insights into the ways in which the various Latin governments functioned. He lost no time in persuading her to accompany him on his journey and in his letter home professed himself delighted that his expedition had taken on an added depth. He went on to mention that the new arrangement was putting an undue strain on his budget and he hoped that the clear advantages would outweigh any inhibition on our part to help with the expenses. Well, <laughs> naturally we agreed to provide further funds and made arrangements with Wells Fargo to send money to his hotel. To his credit, it was the only time he asked us for additional funds apart from the occasion in Rio de Janeiro when he had his wallet stolen whilst relaxing on Copacabana Beach, and in Bolivia when he needed to buy some antibiotics for a chest infection. I won't bore you with all the details of Tancred's long sojourn in South America. Suffice it to say that his letters reflected how happy he was, and he wrote to tell us to expect him home for Christmas. Indeed, he would have arrived back some weeks ago, but for a silly misunderstanding at the airport in Colombia. From details provided to us by the British consulate in Bogota, it appears that during a luggage search, he was found to be in possession of a two-kilo bag of what turned out to be cocaine. The authorities, rather high-handedly, I thought, arrested him despite his insistence that the package was a present for his mother, which he had purchased in good faith, believing it to be a brand of refined Venezuelan cane sugar, of which she was particularly fond. The police refused to accept his perfectly reasonable explanation and sent him under guard to a detention and rehabilitation centre to await trial. Martina was unable to offer any help, as she had to hurry back to Buenos Aires because of an urgent family emergency. Well, of course, we flew over to Colombia as soon as possible and arranged a meeting with the chief of police, an elderly, friendly gentleman who spoke good English. He told us that this was a very serious offence and if our son were found guilty, he could be looking at a sentence of at least 15 years. But he went on to say that there was a reluctance on the part of the authorities to clatter up the judicial system with charges against foreign nationals and he might be prevailed upon to use his influence to have the charges dropped in return for a contribution to the fund for the education of his nephew. We were glad to agree to his suggestion, especially as the amount mentioned, whilst substantial, was eminently manageable with the aid of a second mortgage on our house. And so we are now back in England, waiting for our cheque to clear and looking forward to the day when we will have Tancred back home. 
I do wish that in his letters home, Tancred would refrain from using the word jail. It has such an unfortunate connotation. Forgive me if I conclude my newsletter on a sad note, but my great-aunt Dorothy recently passed away at the grand old age of 92. For the last 30 years of her life, she lived alone in her cottage on the outskirts of Basingstoke. We all loved her and went to visit her as often as we could. I cannot forget the day she stood in her cottage and declared that time went by so quickly as one got older. She had tears in her eyes when she said that she clearly remembered that the last occasion we had visited, Araminta was a tiny baby, and now here she stood, a grown-up young woman. We were disconcerted to discover that Aunt Dorothy had, over the years, taken out a number of bank loans, using the cottage as collateral, in order, as it turned out, to indulge her love of travel. Her cottage was packed with memorabilia from all over the world. Silk saris from Thailand, necklaces made from Alaskan grizzly bear's teeth, miniature spears from South Africa, you know, the sort of thing. On her baby grand piano, she kept a display of two dozen small silver photo frames containing photographs of herself accompanied by different foreign-looking gentlemen. Perhaps they were members of staff who had been helpful to her when she was staying at their hotels. She was always very good at making servants feel comfortable. Her sole bequest to us was her extensive collection of exquisite 18th-century Limoges porcelain, which we had all admired for many years. We were, however, deeply conscious that we could in no way consider ourselves the outright owners of the pieces, rather that we were mere trustees, charged with keeping them safe for future generations and ensuring for all time that the general public will be afforded the opportunity to appreciate their beauty. We are therefore intending to allow Christie's, the auctioneers, to sell the collection on our behalf. It seems fitting that we should acknowledge the important part that her love of travel played in her life, and with this in mind, we are proposing to arrange a family excursion to Barbados where we can share with each other reminiscences of all the pleasant time spent in her company. It's what she would have wanted. And so it is time to bring this newsletter to an end. May I wish all my readers everywhere peace and prosperity for the new year. Until July... <laughs> I can't wait. Your loving friend, Bunny Barraclough. Dear friends, I know this newsletter is a little early, but so much has happened that I thought it would be selfish to keep it all to myself. First, the big news. Archie and I have become grandparents. We were woken by a telephone call from an ambulance driver who explained that Araminta had gone into labour and was being rushed to the hospital. 
We jumped into the car and drove to London as fast as we dared, but alas, we were too late for the birth. We found the proud mother installed in her bed, holding a beautiful baby boy blessed with perfect features and masses of red hair. Araminta told us that it had been a difficult birth, owing to the baby's unusual size, 12 pounds and 4 ounces. Archie said that the baby was the image of his brother-in-law Cameroon, who was a big man with bright ginger hair. Neither Archie nor I had seen him for years, but I reminded Araminta that she had stayed at his house in Edinburgh last September. She replied that she was in too much discomfort from her stitches to talk about it and asked us to leave so that she could get some rest. Archie seemed concerned and asked me if we shouldn't make sure that Araminta had been given the right baby, as neither she nor her boyfriend Jack had ginger hair, but I assured him that babies frequently underwent a change of appearance soon after birth, so there was no need to worry. It was unfortunate that Jack was not present at the birth, but Araminta told me he had been detained and was currently staying on the Isle of Wight. I know it may seem that all I can talk about is the joyful event, but I have not been idle during the past few months. Far from it. Of late, most of my time has been taken up by matters arising at the Amateur Dramatic and Operatic Society, of which I am chairperson. Following the successful staging of our Christmas pantomime, Mother Goose, a meeting was called to decide upon our entry for the East Wittering Festival of the Arts in July. After much debate, we finally settled upon the play A Streetcar Named Desire by the American playwright Tennessee Williams. Discussions as to casting then followed, and I am proud to report that I was almost unanimously selected for the leading female role of Blanche Dubois. The one dissenting voice was that of Lucinda Hawksworth, a recent recruit to our little band. She said that my casting in the role was a clear case of Buggins' turn, an unfortunate tendency in amateur theatrical companies. She doubted that I was capable of capturing the essence of Blanche's character owing to my lack of training in the dramatic arts and that the part ought to go to someone like herself who had been exposed to the teachings of Rada. She went on to say, however, that on reflection it would be a mistake to cast a young and attractive girl such as herself in the part when it quite obviously required an older, more homely woman like myself. I found her remarks provocative, but refused to rise to the bait, and resolutely maintaining my customary air of good fellowship, I thanked her for her generous comments. That aside, rehearsals have gone well. The male lead role of Stanley Kowalski is filled by a young man called Gordon, who hails from Liverpool, having briefly attended a small drama school in the city. At first, I was disconcerted by his pronounced Merseyside accent, but there was ample compensation in the power that he brought to the part with his muscularity, dark good looks and enigmatic smile. We soon established a rapport, and the numerous run-throughs have resulted in our performances meshing together nicely. I confess to feeling less than comfortable with the more intimate parts of the play, 
as I am not given to public displays of affection, but Gordon, perhaps sensing my inhibitions, eventually took the initiative, and in a particular scene where we were required to kiss, he thrust his tongue deeply into my mouth. You can imagine my surprise, but I managed to keep my equilibrium and complete the scene. Later, during a break in rehearsals, I raised the subject of his actions, and he told me that his training in Liverpool had been based on the Stanislavski method of acting, in which everything was sacrificed for the sake of realism. I immediately understood, and resolved to put my reservations aside, entering wholeheartedly into the spirit of the performance. Later, in a quiet moment, Gordon suggested that he felt we could achieve greater authenticity by holding additional rehearsals alone in his flat, free from any distractions. We could share a bottle of wine and take the chance to fine-tune our technique. I told him that I did not think it fair to seek to enhance the standard of our own performances beyond the capabilities of the rest of the cast. He seemed crestfallen at the time, and I have since noticed a discernible reserve creeping into the relationship between us. Last evening, on my way home from the theatre, a taxi drew up next to my car at a set of traffic lights. In the back of the taxi, I glimpsed a man and a woman in conversation. Without a doubt, the man was Gordon, and the woman looked uncannily like... Lucinda Hawksworth. I begin to wonder whether she is trying to undermine my position in the production by ingratiating herself with Gordon. My fear is that his provincial upbringing has not equipped him to deal with this type of manipulative behaviour. He should be warned. I will have a quiet word with him. Anyway, enough of me... By now, I expect you're impatient for the latest news about our son, Tancred. You'll be glad to hear that he has returned home at last, following that silly misunderstanding in Colombia. I must say, the police in Bogota were as good as their word and released him as soon as our cheque cleared. During his period of confinement, he had befriended two other inmates who were also looking forward to their release and developed a plan for creating a business in Europe. Tancred was very enthusiastic about the prospects, wanting very much to get involved, and so when we transferred the money to pay for his return home, he asked us to send an additional sum to pay for their air tickets to England. We met Tancred at the airport and were immediately impressed by his companions, two young American boys who introduced themselves as Travis and Billy Bob. Over a late supper at the house, they outlined their plans to form a film production company, making DVDs for special interest groups. They had chosen Holland as their production centre, owing to the ample studio facilities, ease of communications and the relatively light regulation on filmmakers compared with other European countries. All they needed to get started was a small amount of what they called seed money, say four or five thousand pounds to cover initial expenses, and they suggested that we might be willing to help. At first we hesitated, 
But the look of eager anticipation on Tancred's face melted our hearts, and Archie agreed to approach the bank first thing in the morning to arrange another mortgage on the house. In the event, our anxieties proved to be groundless, as over the last few months the business has established itself at a gratifying pace. The production centre under Travis is turning out films at an astonishing rate, and Tancred has set up a UK sales and distribution system in the back room of Archie's bookshop. Last week, the boys revealed their plans for the future during a strategy meeting at the house. Travis was anxious to expand production capacity and put forward a suggestion that they open a second centre of output in Belarus, where, he had been informed, there was a lively community of aspiring actors and actresses all eager to participate. He went on to point out that, of course, a fresh injection of working capital would be necessary and that Archie and I were the best place to make the investment as we possessed the most stable asset base. Archie was very enthusiastic and undertook to determine the amount of equity remaining in the value of the house. They say that running any business involves a certain risk, but the boys seem to know what they are doing, and I must say I find it all very exciting. I would love to go on, but I must bring this update to a premature end. Archie will be home soon, and I must telephone Gordon to warn him about... Lucinda Hawksworth, and perhaps arrange a date for those additional private rehearsals he was so keen on. I will write to you again in December with all the latest news. Until then, keep smiling. Love and best wishes, Bunny Barraclough. The Barraclough Newsletters were written by Jim Gotts and performed by Mary Scott. The programme was produced by Paul Tyler and Johnny Hall. <laughs>